Um, <clears throat> good morning. You probably uh, would have expected Nathan here this morning. He's been teaching through Exodus for a long time, and he finally finished it. Thank you, Nathan. It's been uh, 82 sermons over two years and four months, which uh, puts him at about two sermons per chapter. So that's a, that's a pretty good pace going through the Bible. But what that means is that if he were to continue on at that pace, he would preach through the whole Bible by the time he turns 83. Challenge accepted. Nathan started Exodus actually four months before I was hired. In fact, a third of you sitting here today probably came after he started Exodus. So this is all you've ever known. Furthermore, 34 of you have been born since he started Exodus. <laughs> Took a good long while, but he was faithful to it, wasn't he? We are so grateful to Nathan. I'm grateful that he didn't skip passages that were hard, talking about slavery skip passages that some of us consider boring, explain to us uh, the purpose of the tabernacle. Very grateful for Nathan's preaching of the word uh, without exception. Um, I was uh, gone a couple weeks ago. We went down to uh, Tijuana in Mexico. It's our annual uh, trip down there with caravan. Um, I got two things out of that trip. One, a cold. So I'm still struggling with that. So I apologize for any coughing or sniffling. Uh, the other thing I got out of it, though, was uh, much more important. We went and visited a little community out in the backside of nowhere. Drive, hit Tijuana, and keep going. And there out there is the dump. And attached to the dump is a community of about 50 to 100 people um, who survive off of recycling from the dump. And they build little whatever they can put together to call a home. Um, and there's this community out there. <clears throat> and on top of that, there is a church within that community with a pastor who works there full-time. He lives there amongst the people. I often hear people complain against God. This is what I hear most often between Christians and non-Christians, is that um, how can God send someone to hell who has never heard the gospel? Well, um, I'll tell you what. What I saw there at the dump with that church is that God is a lot more concerned about that question than we are. That he sent a pastor to the backside of nowhere to a small group of people that nobody cares about, the outcasts of society, to share the gospel with them. So before we criticize and condemn God in our hearts for not reaching the lost and sending them to hell, realize that he is much more concerned about that problem than you are. And that's what I brought back and remembered. So I would encourage you, if you get the opportunity, to go on this trip one day to do that. But I want to transition now to um, our sermon today from Titus chapter 2, verse 1. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, that an opponent may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our, our Savior. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the community of believers that you have brought together um, for our benefit, for our good, and for your glory. Um, God, we are grateful for your son who died on the cross to save us from our sins. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who works in our hearts even now to convict us of sin and truth that we would be brought into conformity with your son and we would learn to obey from our heart not only from compulsion but out of a desire and a love for you out of a changed and renewed heart by your Holy Spirit and Lord we pray that this morning that you would um, use your Holy Spirit in our hearts to speak truth into our lives God I am the weak and finite vessel inadequate to preach but that really doesn't matter to you because you are powerful to overcome and I pray that you would do that this morning that despite my inadequacy to be here that you would be powerful that your truth would go forward this morning in Jesus name amen <clears throat> please be seated um, Nathan is going to have a much deserved break for the next four weeks while I cover some of Titus. Uh, I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 over the next four weeks. Today I'm only going to cover verse 1 in, in its entirety, um, but in the coming weeks we will look uh, more at the following verses. Um, I preached a sermon on 11 through 14 uh, many months ago, and that was really the theology of what is the application uh, verses 1 through 10. And so if you've missed that sermon, you may benefit from going back and listening to it online. Uh, but for today, uh, we are going to assume that you know something of what verses 11 through 14 says. And we will cover it in a minute, though. Uh, we are going to look closely at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And from this, uh, we will get three points. So let's reread it one more time. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There are three points I'd like to pull from this. Uh, you can write them down if you are a note taker. Point number one, sound doctrine agrees with Jesus and leads us to godliness. Point two, sound doctrine is applied through relationship. And point three, sound doctrine must be protected. Let's look first at point one. Sound doctrine agrees with Jesus and leads to godliness. And you say, well, where is that in the verse? I don't see it. That's okay, because it's not explicitly stated. Except he says sound doctrine. And what is sound doctrine? Well, first of all, we've got to understand the word sound. Sound comes from the word healthy. Uh, Luke would use this word. Luke was a companion of Paul, wrote the book of 
Luke and Acts. And Luke would use this word to refer to people who had been healed by Jesus. So they were sick at one point, and then they became healed, and they are no longer sick, but healthy. So the word has a connotation of a healthy body. Paul takes that word, adapts it from that context into the spiritual context, and says the teaching, that's another word for doctrine there, the teaching that is healthy. And that tells us a number of things, but but first of all, that sound doctrine is healthy teaching. But it really doesn't help us too much with what it is, and so fortunately, Paul had written another letter uh, to uh, his dear son in the faith, Timothy. So if you flip back just a couple of pages, don't go too far, 1 Timothy 6, 3 gives us a little bit more understanding of what is meant by healthy teaching or sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, that would be an unhealthy doctrine, and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So, okay, so from that verse, what then, what then is sound doctrine? One, it agrees with Je- what Jesus taught. And two, it promotes and leads to godliness. Okay, so first thing is it, it teaches what Jesus taught. It agrees with it. Well, what did Jesus teach? What's interesting, if you have never really thought about it, is that Jesus never wrote anything down. Um, in an ultimate sense, I guess he did because he's God and he inspired the Bible. But in a uh, real physical sense, he never actually put pen to paper and gave us something to read. Instead, uh, he charged his apostles to do this. And so, uh, what we need to do to understand is jump back into Titus to understand, okay, what is it? Where do we get Jesus' teaching? So go back to Titus 1, 1 through 3. And you'll see, okay, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So how do we know what Jesus taught? Well, simply he, uh, he commissioned his apostles to write it down. And to write it down and explain it. And so that's what we have in the New Testament, right? The, the apostolic doctrine, that is the, the doctrine of the apostles written down that accord with what Jesus taught. And they explain it to us. And that's how we get our New Testament. Now, what we find as we study the New Testament is that Jesus taught from the Old Testament. So Jesus said that the Old Testament testifies of all things about himself. And so where do we find sound doctrine based on these things? Simply the Old Testament and the New Testament. I would hope that that is not revelation to you, but that is something old news. But it is vitally critical to understanding sound doctrine. Paul, in his letter to Titus, has given us really three sound doctrinal statements that put a barrier or guardrails around what it means to have sound doctrine. And the first one is that Scripture is authoritative in our lives. That the writings of Paul and Peter and all of the other apostles and their associates authoritative in our lives because they tell about what Jesus taught and they explain it to us. And included in that is the Old Testament from the prophets. 
What's wonderful about this is that it's in black and white, clear, unchanging, authoritative in our lives. Many people want to know, what does God want me to do? Well, what does God say about this situation? How am I to understand the will of God for my life? How are we to discern the, what we hear from God? How do we know if it's a lying spirit or something sinful in our own hearts and desires? How do we know that versus what God has told us to do? It's clear. It doesn't change. It's the same. No matter how our culture changes, no matter how our mind changes, everything about the rest of the world changes, and yet Scripture stays the same. So we can keep coming back to that time after time. Thank you for writing it down, God. I appreciate it. Because Scripture is the definitive Word of God, and we can trust it. It's a more fully confirmed Word that teaches us about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so sound doctrine affirms the authority of Scripture and all of the apostles' writings, as opposed to sick doctrine, which wants to throw some of it out. You hear this quite often, right? That, uh, you know, I love Jesus. He's a good teacher. I like what he had to say. But that, that Paul guy, I, I don't like him. He, uh, he tells me things that I don't agree with. And so I want to throw it out. And that's what sick doctrine does. It, it picks and chooses scripture that they like, that lets them live the way they want to live, and throws out what they don't like. But sound doctrine says, no, all of Scripture is God-breathed and authoritative for my life, and I'll obey all of it, no matter the cost. This is why, as um, preachers at COBC, we desperately and unapologetically cling to Scripture in our preaching. Because as we, if we step outside of Scripture and try to say something wise apart from it, we are prone to error. So as a safeguard, we stick, stick true to Scripture. Paul makes another theological statement in the book of Titus, in chapter 2, and I, I covered this in a previous sermon, but let's look at it again very quickly. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you go back and listen to the sermon, you'll hear that the main point of this passage is that God's grace trains us for Christ-likeness. False teachers want to add rules and regulations to try and bring about godliness. And that is a human thinking, human wisdom way of doing things. And they want to say, okay, let's put this rule here and this rule in place. And someone sinned in this way, so let's create a rule to keep that from happening and another rule to keep that from happening. And what happens is you encircle yourself into this slavery of rules and it stifles the vitality of a church. And it's suffocating the believers and you have many churches many people who leave churches because the church was so as they would say legalistic that it kills any spirituality that might be there and so false teachers bring that kind of thinking into the church but the what Paul is warning against is no 
it is God's grace that trains us for godliness, not rules. And secondly, in that same passage is the hope that we find in God's, in Jesus Christ's second coming. His first coming brought salvation, and his second coming brings the consummation of all things, judgment for those who reject him, but eternal life for those who have repented and believed. And so the world, the falsely, false teachers want to say, hey, look to the world to solve your problems. Now, whether it be money or drugs or medicine, um, whatever it may be, the hope is in something of this world, and that is a false teaching. There is no hope in this world. It's all going to burn up, right? The only hope is in Jesus' second coming, and in that he will burn it up, but he will make it all new again. So we don't look to this life uh, for our hope. We will be sorely disappointed. Paul makes a third theological statement to guard sound doctrine in verses three through se- chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Would you read with me? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's true. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We see two things in here. One, the doctrine of good works. There are two pitfalls here. One is to say that good works will save you. That is false, undeniably false by this statement here. Um, The other one, the other pitfall is to say that uh, good works are unnecessary. We're not a part of Christian life. No, neither one of those is true. Good works have their place in the Christian life. They just don't have their place in salvation. The good work was done by Jesus completely. And because of that, we are able then to do good works and necessarily will because of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that it tells us is that the salvation of our souls is completely and 100% God's work. False teaching wants to attribute some of it to man, whether it be by his good works or by his choice. It is because of false teaching will say something to the effect of, uh, if you choose God, then you can be saved. It is factually false, according to Paul's teaching here, that God has done 100% of the saving, the regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and as a response to that, we put our faith in God and repent and believe. Sickly doctrine wants to give us some credit. We deserve nothing. We deserve no credit for our salvation. 100% belongs to God. Praise Him for that. Because we would have messed it up, wouldn't we? Even 1%. So, Paul has established some guardrails for what sound doctrine is. But the question now is, okay, what do we do with sound doctrine? How is it applied to our life? Because sound doctrine is not something that is studied in an ivory tower 
something that is a mental exercise. No, sound doctrine is very applicational. So let's return to verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and see if we can find uh, what we do with sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, so what do we do with sound doctrine? Titus was to teach it. Teach it to the people. Teach how sound doctrine applies to your life. What's interesting here is Paul does not choose the word for preach or proclaim, as is often used in other places. Here he uses a word that has a little bit more of a relational tone to it. He says uh, to talk with them. A literal translation might be to speak with someone about what accords with sound doctrine. So what he's saying in that is that it is one thing to get up and preach and proclaim God's word from the pulpit and to apply it to people's lives, but there's a general sense in which that happens. There are, I don't know, maybe 150 of you, 200 of you sitting here, and I can proclaim doctrine to you, and I can give you some general application, but the nature of our lives is that they are very unique and specific, and they're complicated. And it's not always so easy to take sound doctrine and just one for one put it to your life. And so he's saying, as you mix with the people, Titus, I want you to talk about the things that accord with sound doctrine and work it out in their lives. Show them how to take it and put it into practice. Work with them on their problems. Understand those things and apply it to them in a relational way. This is not relational. This is good and necessary. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Paul isn't saying that we ought not to preach or that our preaching shouldn't have application. That is not what he's saying. What he's doing is adding to that. He's saying, because preaching is necessarily foundational to sound doctrine, as we're going to find out as we look at an elder. But what he's saying is, once you have preached the word of God, go to the people, understand the people, and talk with them about how that accords in their life. You can't stay separate from the people, distinct, keep them at arm's distance, preach and walk away. No, enter into their lives and be a part of that. So we're going to look more at that in the coming weeks. So I'm going to stop there on that point and pick it up in the next three weeks as we look at what it is to relate to one another within the context of a church. So I want to move on to our third point. That is, sound doctrine must be protected. Look back again at verse 1. It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Who is the you in this sentence? It's Titus. Okay, who is Titus? Titus was the first elder in Crete. Um, Probably what has happened uh, is Titus and Paul have come to the island of Crete, have started evangelizing. We know that the Cretans first heard the gospel back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Some believers probably came back and started sharing. Paul and Titus come to Crete and start sharing more. People are coming to faith. Now Paul is called away to go do something else, and he leaves Titus behind and says, all right, Titus, finish the work that, I've, that we've started here. Now we look at verse 1-5. Uh, we, we understand says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put, uh, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he says, bring them together, bring all these believers who have, 
who are all, there's all over the place, all over the towns and cities, bring them together into what we're going to call the church and organize them. Why? Well, you'll see in verses 10 through 16, if you were to read on, we won't take the time today to do that, that false teachers are sitting waiting to disrupt and ruin the plans of God. And when the people are scattered and isolated, the false teachers, like wolves and sheep, are able to go and pick them off, one and one, 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 one. When there's no shepherd, there's no overseer, they're susceptible and weak. And so Paul says to Titus, hey, bring them together. Bring them together into the context of a church and do two things. He's going to teach them. He says, organize them in two ways. And the first way is by putting elders over them. And the second way we will look at, the, look at in the coming weeks is to teach them how to work, how to live in relationship to one another. And what we understand from this is that the structure or organization of a church is primarily relational, not organizational. What I mean by that is it's not a bunch of logistical structures in place or statements of faith that primarily defines a church. What defines a church is the relationships that they have with one another. And as you look at the qualifications of an elder, he spends several verses talking about their character, not about what they've accomplished, not about their ability to organize and coordinate people. No, he says, first know that they can relate to people in a way that is not hypocritical. We won't look at that today. I'll leave that for your homework to go and look at the qualifications of an elder and you'll see that the qualifications are primarily about how they have related to their family, their wives, their children, and how they relate to the community, how they're observed and seen by other people. You see that the qualifications are relational in nature, not logistical in nature. And they must have sound doctrine. Because why? Look at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. God's steward of what? Look down at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give, doc, uh, give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What is the purpose of the elders? to oversee the doctrine, to oversee sound doctrine and protect the people from false teachers, to keep them together, to show them how doctrine applies to their lives, to work with them through their problems. That is what an elder is supposed to do, to oversee sound doctrine being taught within the community. And they have to have characters that match that so that they're not hypocritical, so they don't undermine their own, word, their own words that they're teaching, they don't ruin their ministry and to be able to protect the people from false teachers. And this is why in our church, you'll notice that there are elders involved in every little ministry that's going on. Why? Not so that we can do all of the work. That's not our job. Not to micromanage and tell everybody how to do every little thing. That's not our job. As elders, it is our responsibility to oversee what is being taught, make sure that it accords with sound scripture, make sure that it's, make sure it accords with doctrine, sound... Make sure that it accords with Scripture and is sound doctrine. Okay. Now, um, don't hear what I'm not saying. Again, elders aren't supposed to teach sound doctrine exclusively. We're all responsible for this thing. We have many people teaching sound doctrine right now who are not elders over in Sunday school. 
It isn't the, only the job of the elders to teach sound doctrine, but it is our responsibility so that if false doctrine gets taught, God will hold us accountable as elders. That's a weighty burden, and we take it very seriously. We um, encourage people to teach sound doctrine. Now, what happens, though, is we become zealous for that. We become zealous for sound doctrine, um, and we bump up into the guardrail that Paul has set in Titus 2, 11 through 14, to be trained by grace. We, we can start to develop something of a watchdog mentality in our zeal for doctrine, that we want to make sure that no false doctrine is ever said in this church. And anyone who does will be excommunicated or shamed or removed from their ministry. We must get rid of it, and we can lose our heart and compassion, our grace that is required to train people. There's a difference between a false teacher and someone who says something false. Someone who says something false, by grace, we train them, we teach them, hey, what you said, that wasn't good. Let me show you in Scripture where you need to be corrected. Yes, okay, great. Bring them back. Okay, wonderful. The false teacher, when you go to them in grace and you say, hey, let me show you where you're wrong in Scripture, they rebel cause problems, they stir up trouble, they don't, they aren't corrected, but through grace we forgive those who will be corrected and apologize, and so we train. The other thing we can do um, in our zeal for sound doctrine, we mentioned earlier, is set up a bunch of rules. Paul says uh, in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, he calls it the, uh, the commands of the people. <clears throat> that false teachers want to set up a bunch of rules to try and guard and protect these things. He says, no, no, no. We don't need to do that. Just deal with it. People, one-on-one, relationally, as it happens. You don't need all these rules. You have the Holy Spirit. Um, we sometimes want to uh, relate to one another programmatically, establish... Uh, activities, programs, ministries uh, that will uh, define how we relate to one another and and that's good. Those things are helpful insofar as they're helpful. But when they become an entity in themselves, when those programs, activities become something that we must prop up and keep going and they've lost their relational nature, they become ineffective and they become commands that we must follow and rules that we must obey policies that are restrictive rather than helpful. And so there's a balance here. Um, I want to say as a quick aside that you'll notice the requirements for the government of the church is pretty minimal. He says, here's, uh, you need to have elders. Multiple elders, by the way. Not one. He says plural per per church. And uh, there are some things in, in other parts of Scripture. You need to have communion, baptism, discipline, these sorts of things, worship. But by and large, he doesn't lay out a whole long list of what it means to be a church. Because he wants the freedom for each church to establish within their context around sound doctrine, staying vital and dynamic as the Holy Spirit is working in that community 
to bring each other closer together in relationship as you glorify God and refine each other. So we don't need to overcomplicate uh, church structure, church government. It isn't like the IRS with a bunch of rules and whatnot. It is free-flowing to an extent. We don't want to take that to the extreme and say, as some have said, um, that, you know, church is not... uh, I don't need to be organized into a community. I can do church by myself. Matter of fact, I can stay home in isolation, and I don't really need the community of believers. Paul says, no, you, you need not only that, you need elders to oversee you, to know you, to help you. You need other believers to know you and help you. There's a, this happens from time to time. We see it regularly. Uh, people will be burned by the church. They have bad experience hypocritical stuff going on, whatever the case, they leave the church, they're fed up with it, I'm never doing that again, they try to strike out on their own, I'm just going to do my own thing at home, I can, I can worship, pray, and read the Bible on my own and be a Christian in isolation. And they find pretty quickly that does not work because the false teachers, the enemy, comes in, disrupts, ruins that, and they find that they are in a desperate state. And so, rather than returning to what God has called together as an organized body of believers to come together and community and relationship, they say, okay, we want to do unchurch. This is a common thing, and it's a nonsensical thing, but nevertheless, people try to do this non-church, and they say, well, we don't like the eldership structure, we don't like being under authority, we don't like leadership, and we don't like any requirements for how I have to relate to other people. I want to come in, I'll sing my songs, etc., and I'll get out of here. And scripture says, no, you open yourself up to false teachers, verses 10 through 16. Be wary of that. Don't participate in that. Submit yourself to the elders. It's good for you. Submit yourself to one another so that as you relate to somebody in community, you say, hey, I've been reading the Bible and I thought this thing. And they say, oh, that's not good. You should not think that way. Let me teach you how that is correct. Or you you say, hey, I've got this problem in my life and here's what I'm thinking about doing. And the other person says, whoa, hold on, hold on. What you're thinking about doing is quite sinful. You should think that again. Perhaps you should go talk to the elders if you need more help. And this is what it is to be in community. But false teaching, sick teaching is rejects that, pushes that away, and says, no, let's just, let's just come together and we'll let the Spirit lead, and we don't need leadership, and we'll just kind of see what happens. I'll, sit, I'll tell you what happens. False teachers come in and destroy. They lead people astray, and... The proof is in the pudding. These churches tend not to last, churches tend not to last very long. Um, It's quite sad. Um, They'll come together for a time. They'll do their thing. They'll sound like they're being really spiritual. Uh, We just let the Spirit do it, whatever. And it turns out it falls apart. False teachers come in. There's no structure. There's no organization. There's no um, accountability. So we don't want that. We want to be organized. Not logistically, not programmatically, but relationally. And so what does that look like? It means we bring people into our homes. That means when we get together in a growth group, we actually open up our mouths and share what's going on in our lives, what we're learning in Scripture, what problems we're facing, 
So we can fall into this trap of saying, well, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to be involved in the church. But it's really a smokescreen. We're not really involved. Yes, we help out in Awana. Yes, we go to the Bible study. Yes, we go to ABF. Yes, we come to Sunday morning. But you're not involved. Because you haven't actually entered into relationship. These things, all of these ministries, these programs, these activities are hopefully designed to push us into relationship with one another. To give opportunity for that. But if you see the programs or the events or the activities as an entity in themselves, something that must be done and accomplished, you miss the whole point. The whole point of all of that is to push us into relationship, to provide opportunity for relationship so that we can be refined, so that we can protect sound doctrine, that we can push away false teachers, correct false statements, and come into a deeper relationship with God that is glorifying and honoring to His Son. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 10 and what it is to be organized as a church. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the elders. Um, You can look at that on your own. But we're going to spend a ton of time looking at what it means to be a part of the church. Paul does a fantastic job here of looking at older men, older women, younger women, younger men, those who go out into the working world, how you relate in that way. And so we'll spend time looking at that. But if you are sitting here today and you consider your life inside of the church and you say, you know what, I really don't have any close relationships. I don't have anybody that I've shared the trials and difficulties of my life with. I don't have anybody who regularly asks me, what are you learning in Scripture? I don't have anybody who will speak boldly into my life and correct me when I'm wrong. Then I will tell you that you are not involved in the church. And you need to be. It's necessary for you. It's helpful to you. It protects sound doctrine in your own life and in the life of the church. We need you as well. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word that teaches teaches us what sound doctrine is. Lord, thank you for the community of believers that corrects, encourages, holds us accountable. Thank you for our elders um, who work diligently to understand scripture and to teach it well, to be gently, gentle in applying it to our lives. Lord, thank you for your salvation. Lord, that you have made it possible for us to do good works. And we long to do those things for your glory. Lord, I ask that you would Convict us this morning where we need to engage relationally with people. Uh, Lord, if, we, if there's anyone who doesn't have a relationship with you this morning, I ask that you would show them that that starts there, that they need a relationship with you before they can have authentic relationship with anybody else. Lord, if uh, there are folks here this morning who really don't have a close relationship in the church, that you would encourage them to get involved the life of the church, not the programs and activities, but the people. May your word be proclaimed from Country Oaks into the lost and confused world who are looking for answers, but looking in all the wrong places. May we be a light of your gospel in the community. In Jesus' name, amen.